First Timothy chapter 4, let's begin in verse 1. Now the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times, the last days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines or teachings that come from demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, here's the doctrine of demons, verse 3. They'll forbid to marry... And they'll command to abstain from foods, I think the King James Version says meats, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused that is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Reject profane and old wise fables, and exercise yourselves toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise in this life and the life that is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. It's the fourth time Paul's used that phrase. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe these things command and teach. So if you're with us on Sunday mornings, we're studying the entire book of 1 Timothy, all six chapters. And I've called the series Blueprints because Paul had literally spent his whole adult life starting churches all over the known world. And here he is at the end of his life. This is one of his last letters. He's a seasoned church leader. He's been through the rigors. He's experienced the ups and downs. And he's writing to a young protege named Timothy who's pastoring in a very influential city, Ephesus in Asia Minor, kind of like New York City. God loves cities because great influence can happen through cities. And so Paul is transferring knowledge to a young Timothy. He's trying to build his confidence. And and here's what I know about Paul. I spent a lot of time with Paul because I spent a lot of time in the New Testament letters. Paul believed to the core of his being, and so do I, and I hope you do, that the church is the hope of the world. I think we know enough about history. Government's never going to solve our problems. You know, science, never going to solve our problems. Medicine, you know, there are profound problems in our world that are are spiritual. They are spiritually derived, and therefore we need spiritual answers. God designed the church to be the hope of the world. Now, Paul was saved in an amazing way. You can go back in Acts and read his testimony. He was blinded by the light. He was transformed instantly. And he spent some time with the apostles. He spent some time, you know, in Arabia alone. And and the one thing that was transferred to Paul was this love of the local church. Now, he wasn't at Acts chapter 2. He wasn't at Pentecost when the Spirit blew in and the church was birthed. But he sure heard about it from the apostles. And so he writes in his New Testament letters about this church that God has designed where believers get built up and edified. That we are the pillar and ground of the truth, as he said in the last chapter. Paul believed that the church stewards the gospel message of salvation and freedom in Jesus Christ. We're a community of faith, hope, and love. Paul believed in what we call the new community, where we're from every tribe, every tongue. We're male and female. You know, in our country right now, there's a lot going on about diversity. And uh, I applaud that, but... Man, I look back and I think the church has been ahead of this curve for 2,000 years. Now, we haven't always practiced it well, but it's always been a part of what the church was called to be. 
Every local church is a place where you can love and be loved, give and receive, know and be known. Paul was probably told by the disciples about the early church where they shared resources, no one lacked. They sang, laughed, and cried together. They met in small groups and large groups. I've always said it, when church is working right, it's the greatest place to be. And so Paul had this deep conviction that the church not only builds up believers, but it reaches out to people who are far from God. And Paul had been on the front lines for decades. He had the scars to prove it. He writes about it. He says, look, I've known pearls of robbers, pearls of the high seas. I've been, you know, beaten with rods. I've been stoned. You know, Paul went through all the rigors of building great churches. And then he had the trophies of God's grace to prove it. Lydia was baptized, the Philippian jailer, on and on and on. And Paul eventually would die for what he believed in. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And now he writes this letter and he says, Timothy, I don't want... It's not God's will that any would perish. Everyone, God wants everyone to be saved. Now, if church believed, if Paul believed the church was this impactful and this important, the question we're asking in this series is, how do you build one? How do you build one of these? Is there a place in the Bible you turn to and it says, okay, here's a list of 10 things, here's how you build a church? And for those of you who've been here, the answer is no. No two churches really look alike or should. Now, we have the same mission. Last week I said we have this very unique message that doesn't alter. But our methods will change. And the reason why two churches would never look alike, your kids will never be the same, right? Because they have different gifts and talents. So this expression of gifts and talents here at Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, will never match any other group of people because we are unique in our expression. Now this is common sense, right? Think about it. Everybody in this room probably listens to some form of Christian music, whether it's worship or contemporary Christian music. In fact, on my way to church today, I drive the same route every, every time, I was at the light, and I was looking behind me, and there was a lady kind of, you know, rocking out a little bit. And I thought, geez, I hope she's going to church. I hope she's listening to praise music and not like Freebird early in the morning. And lo and behold, I made the turn in the church, and so did she. And I thought, there's a woman who gets it. She's going to like float in the church and sing and have a wonderful experience. And um, so we all buy Christian music or worship music. And outside of a few artists, it's all coming out of three or four churches, very prominent churches. And you see, that's the gift or the expression God has given them. Other churches, uh, prayer has exploded, or they do crusade ministries, or there's teaching and preaching, or they're known for missions. And anytime God does something like this, we should applaud and say, yay, God. And I'm a firm believer that the reason God blows things up like that is to show what he could do if people ever gave their life to it. God says, this is what I could do in your midst. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, instead of applauding, two things happen. One, criticism. Go out on the internet. Anybody who's doing anything for God will be criticized. And the second thing we do is we're prone to copy, right? Oh, somebody has a prayer meeting on Tuesday night with 2,000 people. I know what we'll do. We'll start a prayer meeting, and it'll be on Tuesday night, and we'll get 2,000 people. No, it doesn't work that way. There really is no blueprint. But if I had one conviction or one prayer, that if there was going to be sameness in every church, what would be the one thing I'd ask for? I would ask for that every church would be a last day's church. If I didn't go to this church, I would want to go to a last day's church. I want to pastor a last day's church. I want to hang around with last day's people. What does that mean? 
Well, Paul told Timothy, Timothy, you are ministering in the last days. And he gives them the conditions. The last days, people are going to depart from the faith. There's going to be heresy and a falling away from the faith, the faith once delivered to the saints. 2 Timothy 3, he tells them the conditions of the last days. He said, perilous time will come. He gives them a list of the conditions. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Then he uses a Philly word. I love it. Brutal. Uh, New King James, brutal. Last days will be brutal, right? Having a form of godliness, but they're going to deny the power thereof. So listen, biblically, when we talk about the last days, we're not talking about the end of the world. We're not talking about Israel and the land, the growth of population, wars and rumors of wars, and all those things, you know, earthquakes in various places. The last days biblically began when the church was birthed at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, all the way to the coming of Christ. Here's how we know. John says, you have heard Antichrist is coming. Definite article, the Antichrist, this one world religious leader, he's coming. But he said, here's how you know it's the last hour. He went beyond the last days. This is the last hour. Many Antichrists have gone out. There's a spirit of Antichrist. Paul believed it was the last days. He believed the rapture could happen in his time. We studied that in, in Thessalonians. So, so please put to bed this idea that, oh, the 1950s was this marvelous time in America, and we've been on a moral slide ever since. Men have been lovers of themselves, proud blasphemers, since the time of Christ. And as far as America, read Island of Vice, how Teddy Roosevelt cleaned up New York City in the early 20th century. It was an island of vice. Ken Burns' prohibition documentary said we were a nation of drunks. So, so let's get rid of that idea that we're on some big moral slide and that's why we're in the last days. We've always been in the last days. Now, we're closer than any generation. And if you've heard me teach on prophecy, you know that we're really close. So we can all agree that we're in the last days. What does a last day church look like? I'm going to give you three principles of a last day church. If this isn't your church, this is the church you should be looking for. Number one, a last day's church should influence culture. This is very important to me. And I kind of opened the door to this last week when I quoted Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness said, how have we as Christians become so irrelevant when we're trying so hard to be relevant? We're trying so hard to be cool in our services, what we do. We're, we're knocking ourselves out to be relevant, and the world doesn't even care. How does this happen? Now, I think the answer is simple. We've never understood we were called to be cultural builders. Let me ask you a question. When you became a Christian, when you were saved, why did God leave you here? See, we have this Western thought that Jesus came to die on a cross so I would go to heaven. So if that's true, why didn't you go to heaven? Why are you here? And the reason why you're here is because there's a new work God wants to do in you, and he wants you to be a culture builder. He wants you to take the raw materials of life and your gifts and to make something of this world. There is a unique contribution you have for the church, your family, and the world, and that's why you're here. Yes, one day you'll go to heaven. You were made for more. When the church confronts culture, it makes two grand mistakes. One, it runs and hides. Runs and hides and says, they're all bad. Let's talk about how bad they are and we're good. The other mistake, it becomes like them. 
Um, let's talk about run and hide. Ravi Zacharias tells this wonderful story in India where there was a man who wanted to buy an entire village. So the man walked from house to house offering a disproportionate large sum of money to each householder in exchange for his property. Delighted at the prospect of such a large profit, all readily entered into a sale agreement except one old man who had a small shack right in the center of the village. No sum of money would change his mind, and he responded with each increasing increment offered with the calm rejoinder, I'm not interested in selling. Frustrated, the rich man finally had to be content to buy the whole village except for the tiny piece of real estate right in the middle. The old man relished his symbolic victory. Every time the rich man had a visitor in the village, the old man stepped out of his little hut, wagged his little bony finger, and declared, if he tells you he owns the whole village, don't believe him, this part right in the middle still belongs to me. And I think the point's clear, right? You know, the church has retreated into our little huddles and buildings, little platoons, and uh, what has happened is we stick our bony finger out every once in a while and say, we're still here. But what we've done is we've ceded culture to secularism. Now, Europe's already seen this. We're on the verge. Secularism where, is where religious ideas and interpretations are not vetted by church leaders and Christians, but we've ceded it to the dominant culture. This is why same-sex marriage and these other things are voiced on cable TV, and if a church leader comes on or a pastor, they're a buffoon or an idiot, Right? You know, they find a way to trick them up, and oh my gosh, this guy believes in seven days of creation, and marriage is for a man and a woman. He must be, like, his brain must have been fried somewhere. That's secularization. In other words, the secular world tells us the way things should be. So there's this raging thing this week about a TV show where the couple in the TV show, it's not that they believe in something, they actually go to a church that believes it. And I love the, the rebuttal that they gave to some of these. They said, well, Nancy Pelosi goes to the Catholic Church, and they don't believe in same-sex marriage either, in common sense. But that's where we are, and that's what happens when we retreat. The second error is to align with culture, to become like it. And then you become like the church in Laodicea where you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, and you have no effect. So what is the proper response as Christians, as churches? Well, Jesus said it very clearly, and it's difficult. It really is. We struggle with this. He said, you should be in the world and not of it. Now, he was in the world, and he was criticized, right? It was said of him, he was a partier, a wine-bibber, a glutton, a friend of sinners. I think he wore that with a badge of honor. Jesus was in the world. He was never of it. When they asked him, you know, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? He said, let me see that coin. Whose image is this? They said, it's Caesar's. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus was never moved by power, fame, anything of that nature. And he was able to be in the world and not of it. What we are called to do, very difficult, is to be world affirming and world denying at the same time. Now, Christians don't like this. We, we like polarization. We either want to be world-denying or move to another extreme. We are called to do both. And when we talk about the world, we're not talking about people. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. It can't be people. People matter to God. They should matter to us. We're not talking about beauty. We're not talking about truth. We're not talking about nature. When we talk about the world, we're talking about the systems 
that principalities' powers have designed to move the world away from God and his commandments. I'll give you an example. So I was an economics major, and I had a professor who kind of wet my whistle in leadership books, and I've always loved organizations. It just, you know, I just, how they work, and so I read a lot in that area as a hobby. And people will come along and say, oh, you know, you shouldn't read those books, because if you read those books, you're going to build the church on business principles, and that's a faulty foundation. And so which I say, well, I would never build a church on business principles. But the Bible does say something about leadership and administration in the church, and why shouldn't we have that at a very high level? The world does. Now, the same people who say it, if somebody comes to fix their air condition, they want that fixed at a high level, but that's a whole other story. The point is, some of these people have done a deep dive into how to handle employees, how to build things. And they've come upon truth. All truth is God's truth. You know, one plus one equals two is not in the Bible, but it is true. Gravity is not in the Bible, but it is true. The early church and the church in almost every century influenced culture in a very profound way. In the book of Acts, it says they turned the world upside down. Paul went to Asia Minor. When he got to Macedonia and later into Athens, he was in pagan culture, right? The Greeks believed in the pantheon of the gods. Go there today, their flag is the cross. Influence culture. Gregory of Nicaea was a church father, third century. I have one of his commentaries from the book of Exodus. He had a very deep heart for lepers because when he read the Gospels, Jesus had a heart for lepers. So he preached a sermon one time so he could raise awareness and money. And he says, lepers have been made in the image of God just like us. He said, let us care for Christ while there is still time. Let us minister to Christ, give Christ nourishment, and clothe Christ and honor Christ. You know, he remembered what Jesus said, if you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. That led to the Council of Nicaea, which declared that wherever there was a church building, they would put an annex, or somewhere in the church, there would be a place where they would care for lepers or the sick. What do you think that led to? That's right. The establishment of the first hospitals were started by Christians. Now, medicine had always existed. The rich had it. They usually had a doctor on call but it was never for the rank and file. It was actually started by Christians. Public school in this nation was started by Christians, Sunday school, and then we gave it over to the government. All through the centuries, the church has influenced culture. Scores of examples could be given. The abolition of slavery, women's rights, scientific discovery, the arts, uh, the putting down of communism and things of that nature. The church has always had a lead. Now, you're probably sitting there and saying, what in the world does this have to do with 1 Timothy chapter 4? I'm glad you asked. It has a lot to do with it. Paul said to Timothy, look, in the last days, the winds of doctrine are going to blow that are not from Scripture, they're from demons. Here's where they are. Verse 3, look for yourself. And, and here's where you need to understand the entire letter. Forbidding to marry and commanding to, to abstain from meats. Now, why would anyone ever be forbidden to marry when God said it's not good for the man to be alone? Marriage is a wonderful thing. 1 Corinthians 7 avows that. Now, Paul said he wished everyone was like he, single, but that he said that was my idea, not the Lord's. This idea of abstaining from food. Now, you can fast if you want, but to make it mandatory, that's another idea. 
Uh, in a couple of verses, we're going to look at it. Paul said, look, bodily exercise profits a little. So there must have been some teaching that, you know, any bodily exercise was bad. He's going to tell Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. There must have been a prohibition on alcohol outside the bounds of Scripture. And then finally, in chapter 6, there must have been false teaching about material wealth. Because he commands Timothy to say, command those who are rich in this present age, this is chapter 6, verse 17, not to be haughty nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. And here's the statement, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So whatever this doctrine was, whatever this form of Gnosticism that was floating around was to move us from God giving us all things to enjoy. See, the false doctrine wasn't we were watering down the gospel, anything like that. It was actually a form of asceticism where they were saying, look, the body's bad, the spirit is good, get rid of everything that's pleasurable and you'll be serving God. And can I tell you that would have set the church back a thousand years? And whatever it happened, happens, those churches never become influential. Paul was concerned in Ephesus that people would not be empowered to find their gifts, to step out into their calling, and to affect that culture. And so I believe last days churches are churches that understand that they have a very important role to play in the dominant culture. The second thing or mark of last day churches is that they have members who are spiritually fit. Members that are spiritually fit. You know, a lot of churches swell on the holidays, right? Christmas, Easter services. We don't really swell. What we do is get all our people back. It's like country music. Get your car back, your truck back, your dog back. We just get all our people back. <laughs> Nobody wakes up on Easter and says, geez, I haven't been to church in 10 years. Let me go to Calvary Chapel. You know why? Because everybody that drives on this property, they're like, what is this? Is this a resort, a conference? I don't even know what it is. If you come here for any length of time, you're going to hear the gospel pretty strong. So I think people that are here want to be spiritually fit. If we're going to affect culture, we've got to be buff. We've got to be spiritually fit. Look what, uh, look what he writes here at verse 7. He said, reject profane and old wise fables. And here's the command. Exercise yourself. It doesn't say you're going to have a trainer exercise yourself towards godliness. Why? Because bodily exercise is okay. Knock yourself out. It's only going to profit here a little bit. But godly exercise profits for this life and the life to come. Now, enough of you have been to museums, right? You know what Greek and Roman culture was like. You've seen the statues of male figures. It was all about anatomy, right? They were all chiseled and cut. They're all naked and and they worshiped the body, right? The Athena Nike, the goddess. And, and it was all about the outward, right? And we know uh, Christianity is all about the inner, inward man of the heart. So that culture was very outward. And in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes that the outward man is perishing. You all know that, right? Every year, another gray hair, another malady, something like that. I mean, we probably have the most stuff to, to kind of put that at bay, so that 60 is the new 40. But I like what Gail Irwin says. Eventually, we're all going to rot. Okay? That's where we're moving. You can delay it. You can look good while you're getting there. But one day, we're all going to rot. All right? But the inward man, Paul said in Corinthians, is growing day by day. 
The closer we get, the more we realize what our inheritance is. So he says, exercise. The word here is gymnasticize. It's where we get the word gymnasium. Exercise yourself to godliness. Join a spiritual Zumba class, is what Paul's saying. Dr. Jack Grapple is an LGF uh, performance systems trainer. Trains professional athletes. Physical, mental, um, you've seen this, the sports science. They monitor how they sleep and drink and what they eat and all that. The one thing that caught my attention, what he said, he said, every athlete has what he calls a well of energy. And what he's trying to do is make sure that well of energy, when you're faced in a time where you really need it, you can draw from it. Now, this really got my mind going. Remember I asked you, why are you here? God left you here to build culture, to lead people to Christ, right? But let me ask you this question. How deep is your well? How deep is your spiritual well? And I'm asking that question not for today and maybe not for tomorrow. But I'm asking that question because the Bible says trials and tribulations are coming. They're coming. And when they come, you just can't open a Bible and find a verse. You've got to draw from the well that's already there. Um, I'll give you an example of this. The rich young ruler came to Jesus one time and said, how do I inherit eternal life? He had enough sense to know that God's kingdom was coming and he wanted to be a part of it. But what he also was saying to Jesus, you know, I'm rich, I'm young, and I'm a ruler, but I still haven't tasted of happiness. There, there's got to be something more. And Jesus said, well, there's the commandments. He goes, yeah, I've done all them. He goes, well, go sell and give what you have to the poor. Now, selling and giving to the poor was not the answer, but for him it was a block. And, of course, he couldn't because he had many things, and, and he goes his way. Now, let me draw you something. I'm going to draw you two wells. Okay? Two wells. And there's kind of two ways to approach this. Um, some people look at a well and they think like the rich young ruler, what can I do? Uh, what kind of behavior do I need? Um, spiritual elbow grease. Do I pray more, read more, go to church more? Okay, it's all about kind of the outward. And then there's another well that says, no, it's all about transformation, character, the internal person. This could be a learning for somebody that could really change your life. There's one group of people that are trying, and I really believe they are. But what they should be doing is training or exercising. You can't try and not look at pornography. Won't work. Now, yeah, Jesus sweated great drops of blood. I get that. If you're ever put in a position, uh, you'll have to resist. I, I understand all that. But trying is never going to get you there. What you need is to be trained. You need to fill your well constantly so when the time comes, you have the character, the inward transformation to make it. N.T. Wright said, character is the pattern of thinking and acting which runs right through someone so wherever you cut into them, you see the same thing over and over again. That's what Christ followers should look like. When we were in Italy, we went to a candy store. I tried to find this on YouTube. I couldn't find it. But it was fascinating because 
they made like a six-foot piece of taffy. And on the, on the taffy, they had Marilyn Monroe's face. And they put it in an oven, and they did all this stuff. But when it came out, they cut the ta taffy in three-inch increments. And every increment had Marilyn Monroe's face. It was unbelievable. Still don't know how they did it. But see, that's character. Character is that when the trials come, when pressure comes at life, it's the inward transformed man that's reacting, not the carnal man who's relying on a couple Bible verses. Let me give you an illustration. Everybody know who Sully is? Some of you may have seen the movie with Tom Hanks. He's the airline pilot whose life was forever changed Thursday, January 15, 2009. He took off from LaGuardia Airport and a flock of birds hit both engines and 99.9% .9 impossibility happened. He lost all thrust. And he, he had about three minutes to figure out what to do. Air traffic control was telling him to land in Newark or another airport. And he made a split decision, went against air traffic control and landed on the Hudson River. And there's that infamous picture of all the people on the wings. Can you imagine that? And then emblazoned over it, miracle. I actually wrote an essay on this saying, was it really a miracle? I don't think so because I, was, I went by what Mr. Sullinger had to say for himself. He had been flying planes for 42 years and he knew New York City like the back of his hand. Here's a quote. I was confident I could quickly synthesize a lifetime of training and experience, adapt it in a new way to solve a problem I had never seen before and get it right the first time. Does that make any sense to anyone? See, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is there is a well we're pouring into that when push comes to shove, we can stand. And I think all the great saints have been this path before. Whenever we have a men's retreat, our first meeting is to say, hey guys, what do you think the breakout should be? Uh, what do you think we should cover this year? You could set your watch and somebody's going to say, we need to talk about porn. And then another guy's going to say, we need to talk about marriages. Marriages are really bad. Next guy's going to say, we should talk about anger. And we go all through that. And I say, look, I don't want to talk about any of that. I want to talk about exalting Christ. I want to talk about maximizing our manhood. Manhood and Christ-likeness are synonymous. I want to talk about who we can be in Christ. I want to talk about what we can do and the, the things we can accomplish if we would only, you know, enlarge our well. Because if we do those things, the other things will take care of themselves. Because I want to train men to be like Daniel who in a foreign land with nobody knowing faced Jerusalem three times a day and prayed. And Jesus, who always found a time to be alone with God. Again, how deep is your well? In January, I'm going to do a series on habits, and I think it's going to be transformational. Last day's churches affect cultures because their people are spiritually fit and have very deep wells. And finally, last day's churches stay anchored to the word of God. Look at verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Till I come, give attention to reading. That's the reading of scripture. To exhortation, that's preaching, some versions. Doctrine, teaching. It's 90% of what we do. Do not neglect the gift, that's the gift to preach that is in you which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership, church leaders. 
Meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will both save yourself and those who hear you. I've been preaching the gospel for 23 years. When I talk to young leaders, I say, you know, I don't know how all this happened. I just have a lot of faith when we teach God's word, lives are transformed, and here we are. I don't really know how it all happened. But I know we're anchored to the word. We don't preach about the word. We don't preach things that are surrounding the word. We preach the word of God. We go through books of the Bible. Sometimes we do series, but generally we're in the Bible. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go into all the world, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, commanding them to observe all that I have taught you. Obedience, a big part of the Christian faith. Timothy was encouraged to preach, to teach, uh, in another place to be a workman unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. But I love here it says be an example. And in chapter 3 he gives the qualifications of overseers, pastors, church leaders. Husband and one wife, not a brawler, not given the money. Apt to teach. The only aptitude is an aptitude to teach. Everything else is character. I've been preaching the gospel for 23 years. And I don't preach it because I live it. Now, believe me, I try to live it. But I don't preach it because I live it. I preach it because it's true. And it's life-giving. And that's my motive. And I don't always measure up. Especially when I'm playing basketball. Flag football. I thought you were a pastor. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Maybe not today. (laughs) But I'll tell you this, for every criticism I've ever had, I've been married for 33 years, raised four kids, I've always taken a salary average or under what I should for the size of this church, my car is 227,000 miles, I love God's people, and by the way, to be an example, you have to be with people, you can't be on your car on the last worship song. Someone told me a long time ago, if you pray, you can teach, and if you live with people, you can teach. It's not about knowledge. It's about calling. People that leave the church should care about the church. The hireling flees. But when trouble comes, the the true leader stays and he keeps the church anchored to the word of God. And when we talk about the word of God, it's just not teaching the word of God, it's living the word of God. Because that's what James talks about, and that's what so much of the scriptures talk about, is that, is that we have to be doers of the word. Again, we're all fallen. You know, at the end of the day, I am a deeply flawed, fallen individual who has been wonderfully redeemed by a magnificent Savior. And so are you. And we're walking this path together. And we're saying, God, this is the last days. We want to seize the moment. We want, to, we want to be a last days church, God. We want to get on our face. Is there an expression for us? Is there something you've called us to do? Because otherwise, we should just go find a place where we can go through the motions and check off the box and just go to programs. But I think God wants us to be a life-saving station, a life-giving station for people who so desperately need our message.